In one of his recent books, Dane Ortland, who writes a lot and I love everything he's written thus far, points out that in all of the 89 chapters of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's only one place where Jesus reveals his own heart. It's in these verses. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And here it is. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, of all the descriptions that Jesus might give of his heart, I'm not sure that gentle and lowly was at the top of our list. I'm not sure that's what we would have expected, especially given the condition of our sinfulness, of our hearts, of our rebellion. We might expect um, regal and imposing in heart or serious and demanding in heart, maybe even lenient and benevolent in heart, but gentle and lowly? Wow, that's different. But it's how Jesus describes his heart. In fact, it's the only place that he describes his heart in all of the gospels. That his chief motivation is towards those who are laboring under heavy burdens, towards those who need rest from the payload of sin and the consequence of rebellion. His heart is towards those who would come to him and take his yoke upon themselves. And when and as they learn from him, discover that he is gentle and lowly of heart. The word gentle uh, in the Greek is used three other times in the New Testament. It can kind of help us give context for what it means by looking at those other verses. It's used in Matthew 5.5 in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, the meek, that's the word used for gentle, the meek will inherit the earth. Now, as you've heard me say numerous times, meek doesn't equal weak. It's not weak and wimpy. Think of a strong horse that is harnessed and under control of its rider. That's meekness, strength directed under control. You'll also find this Greek word for gentle in Matthew 21, five, where Zechariah the prophet is being quoted and he is describing Jesus as the king coming to you humble. That's the word for gentle. Coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. And finally, we see that word used in 1 Peter 3, 4, where Peter encourages wives to adorn themselves with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. The other word that Jesus uses, lowly, can also be translated as humble, like in James when it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But more often than not, lowly is 
referring to the low, undistinguished social standing. As someone that is beneath the elite. And it's why Paul says to the Romans in Romans 12, 16, that we should not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And that's certainly true of Jesus. He, he embodies that command. He associates with the lowly. He's a friend to the sinner. He eats with tax collectors and prostitutes, the outcasts, the ones that no one else even gives a moment to, certainly doesn't look their direction. Jesus is a friend to the ordinary, run-of-the-mill, garden variety, undistinguished, undescript, undesired nobodies. And I don't know about you, but that includes me. Because he is gentle and lowly in heart, he's not rash or trigger happy. He doesn't fly off the handle or act harshly. He's not cavalier or easily perturbed. He is gentle and lowly in heart with unlimited strength, yet fully under the Father's control. But also remember that while Jesus is all of these things to some, it's not who he is for everyone. He's humble for those who come to him, but for those who don't, for those who resist, who are unrepentant, who refuse his offer, not so much. And you only have to go back the previous paragraph in Matthew 11 to verse 20 to prove it. Look at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. And then down in verse 24, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Whoa. You remember what happened there, right? It's going to be easier on them than on these two that he's just denounced. So gentle and lowly must not mean gooey and soft. But for those who do come to him, those who draw near to him, for those who take his yoke upon them, for those who would learn of him. Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. He is the embodiment of humility, always honoring the Father, never exalting himself. And while humanity is constantly trying to exalt, defend, and justify itself, Jesus was humbling, lowering, and emptying himself all the way to the cross. That's why Paul would say to the church in Philippi, Philippians 2, 5, have this mind among yourselves, 
which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What a picture of humility. A picture of what humility looks like. But an example to us also. Example to each of us because Paul says and Jesus intends for us too to have this same mind, to have this same heart. One of humility, just like Jesus. So, there you have it. Let's all go do it. Easy, right? Oh, not so much. Everybody's had a problem with it. Not just us. Um, his first disciple showed us how hard it could be. Remember those guys? Those guys that walked with him for three and a half years, saw all these miracles, heard all his teachings, had been impacted and impressed and changed in their own lives. They had a hard time with this. While Jesus had been everything yet made himself nothing, they started out as nothing, but began to think they were everything. Well, like that time when they were arguing uh, right in front of him <laughs> about who was gonna be the greatest in the kingdom. And it seemed like they did this a lot, by the way. But this time they're doing it right in front of him. They decide they're gonna let him decide <laughs> how big of them. Jesus, you settle this argument. Who's gonna be the greatest in your kingdom? <laughs> he just ignored them. He, he, didn't, he didn't take the bait. You know what he did? He saw a child and he, he picked up the child and he set that child in their midst. And he said this in Matthew 18, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, much less be the greatest. That, that's my translation. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You gotta understand culturally, children were not celebrated like they are in our culture. Uh, they were the humblest of humble. They were to be literally seen and not heard and maybe not even seen. They, they were oftentimes put in places where they would do very hard tasks and very hard chores and to make sure the family could feed to eat, they were workers. And children were not elevated be all that you can be. As Brother Charles says, they didn't have self-esteem back in those days. <laughs> he says they didn't have it back in his day. <laughs> Children were humble. And he says, unless you become like one of these, you don't even make it to the kingdom. Here you are talking about who's going to be the greatest. Newsflash, you may not make it. Jury's still out. And what about that time when the sons of Zebedee, two of his disciples, got their mother to come to Jesus? I love this story. You know I do. It always tells you something about 
someone that has to have their mommy come and do their dirty work, clean up their mess, make a way for them. Please, mama bears, I'm not trying to step on your toes, but sometimes you ought to let your kids face what they have to face and not rescue them from what's going on. Now let the Holy Spirit guide you. Please don't throw anything at me right now. But these guys are followers of Jesus and they get their mommy to come ask Jesus on their behalf if they can have two seats of honor. One to your right and one to your left. (laughs) And Jesus, I, I gotta imagine, I'm thinking Jesus is shaking his head through a lot of these things. Hashtag SMH. Shaking my head. Are you kidding me, guys? Are you kidding me, mommy? Really? Do they even know the cup I'm about to drink? Can they do that? Oh, sure we can. They pipe in now. They decide they're going to add. Oh, of course we can. <clears throat> and he just tells them that that's not his honor to give them in the first place, which tells you something about Jesus, that he doesn't have it to give and tells you something about them that they expect him to give it to them in the first place. And so this is what he says to them. He says, my kingdom's different. And here's how he puts it in Matthew 20. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, You'd think that they would have learned after those two episodes, but they didn't. I mean, even even on the all-important night of the Last Supper, the culmination of so much of their ministry, they are together and Jesus is washing their feet. He is taking on the form of a servant, giving them a model to example themselves by. And he is breaking bread and saying, this is my body given for you. This is my blood, handing them a cup and saying, I've shed my blood for you. That's what's about to happen, guys. Even in that place right there, they're still arguing about who is the greatest. In Luke 22, right after the the meal, This is what happens. A dispute arose among them right there in the meal as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Are you kidding me? Verse 25, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as one who serves. If it was hard for those guys who walked with Jesus for three and a half years to get the understanding of what it looks like to be humble, how hard is it for us? I love Andrew Murray's book on humility, and honestly, it's just a very small book. I might suggest it to anyone. Very quick read. He writes so many good things. This is one of them I want to share with you. He says, how little humility is preached, how little it is practiced, how little the lack of its 
Lack of it is felt or confessed. How few ever think of making it a distinct object of continual desire or prayer. How little the world has seen it. How little has it been ever seen in the inner circle of the church. Wouldn't it be great if our hearts were filled with this one motivating thought that our greatest need in living for him and with him is humility. And that what Jesus is, he will help us walk out. And what he lived, he will also give. And what he says of his very own heart can pump the same blood into ours. As the gentle and lowly one, he will come and dwell in our longing hearts. You know, during this fast, uh, as in every fast that we go through, I feel the Lord is always gracious to give me, and he probably does this for you, something to ponder, to chew upon, a, a word that he's saying and speaking to me. I'm always so grateful for that. <laughs> it always convicts me a little because I think, why don't I do this more often? <laughs> if he's so willing to give, why am I so unwilling to seek him? I digress. But throughout our time of fasting, I felt the Lord speaking two things to me. And one is this whole issue of humility this lifestyle of humility. You, you heard my earlier story about how I was irritated with, or had the chance to be irritated. And God said to me, I thought you were doing it for me. And that's, to walk that out takes humility. It's nothing short of that. This lifestyle of humility, not just the humbling myself in those first days of fasting because you're starved and you're like, ugh to bite somebody's head off, humble yourself. You know, you're, you're really working on humility in those days. But I'm talking about throughout the time and throughout the season of my life, throughout my life, seeing the humility of Jesus, how he lived his life, not weak and wimpy, but not, but not defending himself or requiring others um, to, to come to him in the way that other nobles had done and other leaders had done. Jesus laid open his heart and he said, learn of me, learn of me. And I, I feel like that's what the Lord's been saying. Learn of me. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Again, I'll leave you with an Andrew Murray quote. He said, humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing to wonder at nothing that is done to me and to feel nothing done against me. Man, I don't think those things are always true of me. I feel a lot when things are done against me. I feel a lot when things are done to me. The second thing the Lord has been speaking to me in this uh, period is something interesting. It, I think the best way I could describe it is spiritual authority. I think James prayed it in our prayer time this morning. 
Spiritual authority, which of course is something that we believe in as a church. We believe he is the Lord. As Jesus Curtis says, he is king and I am not. He gets to be in charge, that he has all authority. It's, it's all his over all things. And that as we submit to him, we get to learn from him how to righteously exercise any authority that he's given us in our life, whether a parent, a leader, a husband, a mother, a pastor, whatever you are charged with and delegated authority given to you, you must learn from him in his authority to be effective in what you do. But I sense in these days a call to a deeper submission on my, my part. And in the process, here's what I've been experiencing. I've been experiencing like a greater anointing, a new energy around um, spiritual warfare. Um, not just the volume of my prayers, though I can get loud, y'all know that, but the effectiveness of my prayer. That as I submit to him, I'm finding him releasing something in the midst of where I am and where the others are. I, I sense him helping me to stand in the gate where the enemy might come in to attack us as a church. And it's not just me, it's many of us that are called to do that. I, I, I feel him challenging me to speak more clearly to those that I disciple. I, I felt over the last several weeks an opportunity not to be harsh or critical, but to just say, have you thought about this? And it really seemed to unlock something in their lives. And it wasn't because I'm amazing. It's because I'm submitted. And the more we're submitted to him, the more he releases the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst. And I'm sensing that he is giving me greater clarity to speak to those that God's called me to influence, lead, to walk with, not to be domineering or heavy-handed, but to be clear in what the Lord is saying and to expect great clarity and freedom because of it. Now, the first, when I realized that these two words were, he was speaking to me in this fasting time, I have to admit to you that at first glance, I, I didn't see how they went together. They seemed like they were opposite ends of the spectrum where you exercise spiritual authority over on this end, but then you walk in humility over on this end. <clears throat> but the truth is, they are very much connected. They are intertwined with each other for it is impossible to be submitted to God or to exercise authority that he gives you without humility. Oh, a lot of people try. A lot of people do, but that means they're outside of the will of God. For someone to exercise that out of expectation, I'm worth it, you should listen to me, I'm the one in charge, I will tell you what we're going to do, you don't belong here, that is nothing short of sin because it doesn't come out of a place of humility. But also, I would dare say, that anyone who is walking in true Jesus-like humility will also always have a measure of spiritual authority. They may not have a platform, but they have authority in how they are to live and operate their life. 
And so the two are interconnected. They are intertwined with one another. And without the one, you can't have the other. Or you better not. All of this reminds me of the centurion, another one of my favorite stories in the New Testament, who came to Jesus because his paralyzed servant was lying at home suffering. And Jesus listened to him. This, this centurion, he's a Roman centurion, more than likely devout to some degree, certainly a wise leader, certainly intrigued, if not a believer in what Jesus was saying, but he comes to the master and he tells him of his servant and Jesus quickly says, well, I'll come and we'll heal him. But the centurion stops him cold in his tracks. And this is what he says in Matthew 8, 8. Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Do you see the connection? how humility is tied to faith and how both of them are tied to his authority? It's intertwined. This centurion understood how authority works. He gave a very descriptive analogy for it. Everything he commanded and expected of those under him, they did. But that only happened because he too understood what it was like to be under authority. He said, that only happens because I also am under authority. So when I exercise it, it's not coming from me. It's coming from the one above me. He didn't try to step out from under the authority or go outside of it. In his humility, that's where he was helped to realize that the one who had all authority in heaven and earth, all it would take for his servant to be healed was for Jesus to say the word. You just say the word. Jesus said, I've not seen that kind of faith in all of Israel. Amazing. By the way, at that very moment, the servant was healed. Jesus said the word. Humility is not so much a thing we bring to God as much as a realization that he is everything and we are not. And when we clear out room in our hearts, he will become everything for us. And that when he says the word, whenever he says the word, it will be done. Let me give us one more Andrew Murray quote as I close. We have to understand that this realization is the only noble thing we can ever really think or do. We must make a choice with our wills, minds, and emotions to become empty vessels that God can fill with his life and glory. And then we will see that humility is simply acknowledging the truth about who we are 
and yielding to God his rightful place. May we as his people, may we not be those who clamor for seats of honor or those who argue about who is going to be greater or work to exalt ourselves, protect ourselves, build for ourselves. But may we have his mind among ourselves, his very heart, to not grasp for privilege or position or count ourselves better than others or exempt ourselves from his example, but where we empty ourselves, become his servants, humbling ourselves in obedience, even in suffering. Let us be known as those who have his very heart. Amen. Donna's going to come. We're going to pray for you. She's still typing her notes. Oh. I think part of what is so amazing about how God works with us is that everything is personal, so very personal and intimate and also so much bigger than that. So part of his heart for the world, part of his heart for his body. Um, And all throughout the fast, he keeps calling us back to a standard that will allow us to be free intimately, personally, and to practice liberating others because we are free, because there's integrity there. Um, There's a quote from Keith Curry, um, and I don't even remember when he said this, but I wrote it down. (laughs) When you open your life to him, to God, he opens his life to them. And so when I pray for us today, what I want to pray for is that, as usual, we let the Lord apply the sword of truth to our hearts Mm -hmm. when it comes to being under authority before we jump to the second part of that, which is exercising the authority he has given to us to declare him, to declare his name and his message and his way. God cares willingly, completely, and powerfully. He loves, and his love is pure and holy and successful. So this is an actual raise your hand question. How many of you are praying for someone who does not yet see God this way? The message today is a weapon for you. It is power for intercession. It is effectiveness. It is our personal victory in Christ that allows us to engage in somebody else's victory. Yeah, that's true. When Chris said that God is teaching him something about exercising authority so that his prayers are effective, 
for those people that you're praying for, how many of you would want to make it happen? (laughs) To set them free, to make them hungry, to comfort their broken places. And today is a path for you to be more effective there than perhaps you've been to date. Yes. Let's pray together. God, we acknowledge that we are under your authority. And in every place where we are, we are then set free to exercise your authority by declaring your name, by praying in your name, by interceding in your name. So, Father, I ask that you would search our hearts, that you would bring to light any place that is not under your authority, anything that is hindering us in our ability to be ministers of reconciliation, faithful ambassadors declaring the power of your love. If there's any weakness in us, any reluctance, any rebellion, any distraction, any pride, Father, that you would bring it into the light and destroy its power. Yes, Lord. That we would be properly equipped to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus and see people saved, delivered, victorious. That's your heart for the whole world, Father, without exception. Yes, it is. May we be invigorated and empowered in our witness because we have let you be the Lord of our lives. Yes, Lord. Lord, I pray for everyone here today who's laboring, for everyone who's heavy laden, for everyone who's burdened under the payload of sin and the consequences of their own actions. I pray for everyone and anyone that is trying to carry that load around under their own strength. It's, it's just too heavy. It's too much of a burden. And we just keep adding to it and the pile gets, keeps getting bigger, more massive, more burdensome. But I pray that in that place of sheer exhaustion, of hopelessness, despair, and wondering if it will ever be different, that the Holy Spirit would speak to them. Speak to them your words. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. And find that I am gentle and lowly in heart. I will give you rest.
Lord, for all of us that may have experienced that rest, but still tend to pick up things along the way, carrying things we shouldn't carry. Help us, Lord, hear the same words. Come to me. Take my yoke. Learn of me. Find that I am gentle and lowly in heart and I will give you rest. And Lord, as Donna has prayed, for those that we earnestly long to see come into a knowledge, into a relationship with you, we pray, Lord, that those words that you spoke would also be heard in their ears. Come, take, learn. I will give you rest. In Jesus' name.